one of the pastor elders here at Trinity. And before we dive into the sermon, we have one last announcement I want to go over. Um, Starting in March, we will be doing what we call equip classes. Uh, You've probably heard these announced already, but we're going to focus on one right now. One being the one that I'll be teaching. (laughs) And I highly encourage you to sign up for any of them, but I highly encourage you to sign up for what is Reformed Theology. It could also be called, why is it important? What is theology? And I believe that when we, sometimes we're tempted, when we see the idea of theology to just be like, ah, that's a little too lofty. Uh, It makes me think of old white guys who've written books and have gone on and died. But the reality is, is we care about theology because when we study theology, we're trying to see God clear. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. Perhaps beauty is not a category that comes naturally to the mind when we think about Christ. Maybe we think of God and Christ in terms of truth, not beauty. But the whole reason we care about sound doctrine is for the sake of preserving God's beauty. Just as the whole reason we care about effective focal lenses on a camera is to capture with precision the beauty we photographed. Church, I want to highly encourage you to sign up for this class. It's not going to be a, a college course or something uh, super, there will be heavy, excuse me, heavy technical things we deal with, but they're hef- heavy, important things to deal with. Because another thing, just real quick, I was thinking about this while I was sitting there. When I say reform theology, I don't know how many people are in this room right now, but I bet each and every one of you has a slightly different understanding of what I'm saying when I say that. And so this is also going to be an answer of not what is Reformed theology, but what it's not. And so I want to encourage you to come be a part of it. Six weeks, stay all six weeks. Don't try it one time, get mad and walk away. Tell me why you left. And uh, let's talk through this. So I'm going to set a timer because if I don't, then you're not going to end. Um, So if you would, let's transition from that to the preaching of God's word. If you would, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, You are a God who has revealed himself to us. Nothing of our own. We did not make ourselves enlightened. We did not find you in some super spiritual search. You found us. You revealed yourself to mankind, and we thank you for that. And now as we study your word, Lord, may it speak to our hearts. May it change us. Where we need conviction, Lord, convict us and change us. Where we need encouragement, Lord, encourage us. And everything we say and do, may we honor you. Bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, actually when I was initially going to preach this sermon, it was incredibly serendipitous, a survey was published by Lifeway that compared what pastors believe their congregation, how their congregation felt about sermons on racial reconciliation in 2020 versus 2016. And today, pastors... Only 74% of pastors believe that their congregation would welcome a sermon on racial reconciliation, which is in comparison to 90% in 2016. This, on, of that 74%, only 32%, one-third of pastors, are very confident that their congregation would welcome a sermon on racial reconciliation. Furthermore, one in six pastors have 
admitted that they have not addressed racial reconciliation from the pulpit in the last two years. Scott McConnell, the executive director of Lifeway Research, says that from their studies, the typical pastors addressing racial reconciliation from the pulpit and without pushback from their congregation, which is a really good thing. However, the noticeable increase in pastors avoiding the topic and receiving criticism could signal that there are new dynamics emerging. We're going to talk about racial reconciliation this morning, or as you might hear me refer to it as ethnic or racial harmony, not because it's a hot topic in today's society or because we want to check some sort of proverbial we care about racism box here at Trinity. We want to preach and we're preaching racial harmony because we find that the Bible speaks about racial harmony. And because the Bible speaks about racial harmony, if you've been with us over the last 12 months or through previous years, this won't be the first sermon you've heard on racial harmony. And it won't be an all-encompassing sermon on racial harmony. And because the Bible speaks about racial harmony, we want to be driven to care about it. We want to be driven to care about issues we see in culture, not because culture tells us to, but we care about issues in culture because God's word cares about those issues. Matt Chandler says this on racial harmony. While racial harmony is not the gospel, it is a theme that is closely tied to the gospel. So it is not the gospel, but it is so closely tied to the gospel that it is an application of the gospel. So we can't be a people who say it's only about the gospel and not about the application of the gospel. We have to be a people who say that the gospel pushes some things, reorients some things. One of the things the gospel reorients is how we see ethnicity and how we seek to become a people of God in a given location. The full counsel of God says that multicultural, diverse ethnic congregations are what God is after in a picture of the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God here on earth. As Christians... We should desire to be an ethnically diverse congregation because it shows the world a picture of heaven. Church, we have an opportunity to invite people, our community, into unity that is not built merely on the idea of unity, but that is built on the everlasting rock that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the big idea, the the main point I want to get across in the sermon today is that the church today should be concerned about ethnic harmony because the picture of the church tomorrow is ethnically diverse. Today, in Revelation 7, we will see a picture of racial harmony where John sees every tribe, tongue, and nation marked by robes of white, and they are worshiping the lamb who is paid for their redemption. So church, the very first beginning in Revelation 7, we see every nation there together. The picture depicted in the book of Revelation is true, unadulterated unity. And it's a unity that truly transcends our current modern idea of unity. The great multitude that is represented in verse 9 is described as every nation, tribe, and tongue, languages together. And this grouping or description of the multitude occurs multiple times in Revelation. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down and look at them later. Revelation 5, 9, 7, 9, 11, 9, 13, 7, and 14, 6. And the order of the description actually differs each time. When we see repetition in scripture, we don't want to assume it's repetition for repetition's sake. That'd be pretty wasteful. The point here is being overly emphasized that the whole world 
every people group and language and culture is brought together surrounding the throne. It is a certainty. Why is this such a point of emphasis in the book of Revelation? Let's think for a moment where the book of Revelation falls in scripture. If you have your Bibles with you or on your app, it probably didn't take you too long to realize that the book of Revelation is at the end. When we think of Revelation, we often get caught up in little details surrounding how or when certain prophecies are going to happen and what those prophecies mean. When we do this, we really start to lose the forest from the trees. See, the point of Revelation is that it's at the end of the Bible, and it's a picture of heaven, a full and total restoration. And if we're saying that the book of Revelation is a picture of total restoration, then it begs the question, when was what is being restored originally lost? And again, if you open up the beginning of your Bible, it doesn't take you long to figure that out. So where in the redemption story did we lose our unity as creation? that is being restored here in Revelation 7. Well, church, we were created with a plan. In Acts 17, verse 26, Paul, speaking to the culturally elite Greeks, says this. He made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. On the sixth day of creation, God created man, and he created man alone, and he created him uniquely from the rest of creation. Imagio Dei, the image, in his image, God's image. When God created man, he planned that he would be diverse. And the picture we see in heaven is this diversity. How did John know they were diverse? He used his eyes and ears. He saw every tribe. He heard every language. He could hear that they were different. In heaven, we will not all be the same, but we will all be around the same king. We will all be under the same kingdom. So we work towards diversity and ethnic harmony on this side of heaven in spite of the sin that we face. As Tim reminded us while going through Philemon, which created enough division of its own versus Philemon, Jan, or (laughs) however else people want to say one of the first effects of the fall in, from Genesis 3 was fractured relationship between man and God. And then from man to woman, being Adam and Eve, beginning to blame shift. But it didn't just stop there. Sin continued to run its course. Immediately in Genesis 4, we see Cain murder Abel, and Lamech boast about another murder. Then, following that, we see the flood where all of humanity is wicked beyond all comparison and God wipes out the earth except for Noah. And then, in Genesis 11, we see this wonderful moment of unity when all of mankind comes together to glorify themselves in the Tower of Babel. (laughs) I believe that as we look through stories in Genesis 1 through 11, and if you spend any time studying throughout all of Scripture or even just looking at our world today, It's easy to see that sin has distorted our ability to see all of mankind as created in the image of God. Because of the fall, because of the sin that has affected us all, we want to be our own gods, and we see others as opportunities to serve us. Shai Lin 
in his children's book called God Made Me and You, celebrating God's design for ethnic diversity, says this. Sadly, in the realm of ethnicity, sin has done what it usually does. It has taken something meant to glorify God and distorted it. The sins of racism, bigotry, and ethnic pride have manifested themselves in many ways in a racially charged culture, both historically and in the present day. When we look at Revelation 7, we see every tribe, tongue, and nation together, and their being together brings their creator glory. Our world, being infected with sin since Genesis 3, seeks to steal glory from our God. In one way, our culture and cultures across the world today and throughout history have sought to steal glory from God is through active and passive racism. See, there is a God-given dignity that is given to every human being that has ever existed. And because of the sin that has been passed to us from Adam, as Romans 5.12 tells us, we have an inherent obstacle to overcome in order to remember human dignity across racial and ethnic lines. It's not in our nature to have ethnic harmony because of our sin. It is not in our nature to see people with God-given dignity because of our sin. You may be sitting there right now or listening on the live stream thinking, Josiah, are you calling me a racist? Like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, are, you don't know who I hang out with on, during the week and on the weekends. Like, I have friends who are all, look differently from, than me. And I think it would benefit us to really spend some time understanding the biblical definition of ethnicity. The word nation here in this passage and throughout scripture is ethnos in the original Greek, which is where we get the word ethnic or ethnicity. Dr. Jarvis Williams, professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, explains how the category of race is broader than we understand it in the 21st century, saying this, The category of race has a broader use in the Bible than in modern terminology. One important distinction is that the biblical category of race was not constructed with pseudoscience for the purpose of establishing a racial hierarchy. Racial categories were employed apart from any consideration of illogical inferiority rooted in whiteness or blackness. In fact, Genesis 11.6 in the Septuagint identifies humanity as one genos, race, kind, class, group. The Greek term ethnos, nation, or Gentile, overlaps with genos, and both terms function as racial categories. When we talk about racial harmony or ethnic harmony, we need to ask ourselves, are we trying to have harmony with people who look differently than us, but still hold to the same cultural or socio-political values? Or are we looking to have ethnic harmony that goes beyond our cultural comfort zones? In other words, I don't believe there's a person in here, and, and I might be naive in saying this, who, who wouldn't say the following statement, I love my brothers and sisters of all color. But if I'm honest, and I think we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with the next part of the statement. I love my brothers and sisters of all colors, but I wish they wouldn't hold a BLM sign. I wish they wouldn't wear a MAGA hat. I wish they wouldn't talk to each other like that, or parent like that, or share those articles. Basically, what I want to get across right now with the idea of ethnicity is this, from Revelation 7. When the Bible speaks of ethnicity, 
and ethnic harmony, that word being used by the original author, its original intent, is a much broader idea than color, but goes into what our cultural values are as well. Second, we see that every nation is redeemed together. So can we actually experience ethnic diversity this side of heaven? I said earlier that their unity transcends our idea of unity. In verses 9 through 10, the multitude is waving palm branches, wearing robes of white, and they are saying this. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And in verse 14, we find that their robes are white because they were dipped in the blood of the Lamb. They are white because of the cross. Going back to our previous point, each individual robe needed to be dipped in the blood of the lamb because sin had affected all of mankind equally. And all who are there are equally redeemed. The multitude here makes the reason for being there together very clear. They are standing before the throne together because they are saved and they have a common savior. The robes of white signify the redemption, the fact that they were bought with the price. To be clear, they are saved, excuse me, they are not saved because they are together, but they are together because they are saved and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. For the Christian, the number one, the most important common denominator for unity is the fact that we have been given robes made with white because they have been dipped in the blood of the lamb. That is our number one commonality, church. Paul, writing to the Romans specifically about the salvation message to a church that is experiencing extreme hostility and division over cultural issues, says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing on his riches on all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because of the cross. mankind's relationship to God has been restored, but it doesn't stop there. Because of the cross, mankind's relationship to each other is being restored. Because of the cross, mankind's relationship to God has been reconciled, made right. Because of the cross, God is making our relationship with all mankind right for those who call on the name of the Lord. When Paul wrote this in the first century church, as I mentioned, there was significant division. But Paul doesn't ignore the fact that they have completely different lifestyles and completely different cultural practices. Instead, he shows those as being superficial when compared to the absolute transcendent reality that they are one in Christ. Church, we are more united to a believer across the sea or across your city with different cultural, ethnic, or color than someone who looks just like you. Pastor H.B. Charles, who uh, is a pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, says this. I won't say it nearly as well as he does, but he says this nonetheless. 
They say blood is thicker than water, but not if that water is baptism. That is where our unity is, church. Do we really believe we are more united to a believer who looks different than us, has different cultural values, different cultural practices than someone who just looks like us, likes what we like, and has the same political and cultural values as us? Do we really believe that? Is our gospel that big? Is the work of Jesus Christ that big? If the multitude in Revelation is united because they are redeemed, I think it's fair for us to ask the question, how do we wrongly emphasize or seek unity apart from Christ? Some of this is a little bit of cultural commentary, but I believe it is fully supported by scripture, to be clear. One way is in our attempt to win people over to our side of a cultural or political argument discussion above winning people to Christ. We seek to find groups that we align with, with pithy quotes and slogans or pocket arguments so that we can justify our worldview and make it known that culture or part of culture agrees with us. We see people hold titles in different terms like Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, critical race theory, Arminian, Calvinism within the church alone, and on and on we could go. And I'm afraid that as believers, we begin to lose our identity and we lose our mission of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ when we work to build up our socio-political arguments in order to justify our cultural values, which in reality are so much more superficial to our union in Christ. We want to prove why someone is wrong and win the argument more than we want to have unity in Christ through his redeeming work. Church, I believe one way we can avoid this is simply giving people the benefit of the doubt and just not assuming the worst, especially, especially for the fellow believer. Second, We have to actually engage in conversations. And by engaging in conversations, assumptions leave the room. Clarifying terms. We're told this in the book of James. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is it. Most people should do this, but let every person. This is for me. This is for you. If we are going to represent eternity well and become multicultural, ethnically diverse church, if we're going to make strides toward racial harmony, we have to lead the church by being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to be heard. Being heard is not the most important thing in the world. I'm talking to myself here as I'm preaching to you. But let that be a practice of us in our families and in our community. Second kind of cultural theme I think I've seen surrounding this topic 
is I think some, but not all, but some efforts we see in the church in 2020 for racial harmony has been more of an effort for us to show culture we're not on the wrong side of history. And the idea of being on the wrong side of history scares us terribly. So we're quick to let it be known on social media. Daniel Darling says this, for Christians, there is value in letting the world know where we stand, declaring truth, and being ready to give a defense to anyone. 1 Peter 3.15. We shouldn't hesitate to use our voices to stand up for the vulnerable and against injustice. And yet our words can so easily morph from prophetic witness to pharisaical tribal signaling in an era where it has become a cultural right to declare that we're on the right side of history on every issue. Christians are not immune to this. We are tempted to broadcast our own righteousness by letting everyone know on social media and articles and blogs, even in published books, that we are not like those kinds of Christians. Church, if you're doing this tribal signaling, as we're as I mentioned, or as Tim talked about a few weeks back, that you need to prove to culture that you care so much so that we can be qualified to have a relationship or share the gospel or love your neighbor, that is a lie from the enemy. And I, I want to invite you to confess that and die to that. I think, I think I've seen in the church today, and I've felt it too, we're, we're scared to enter into ethnic and racial harmony because we think we need justification from the culture first. But the reality is that our justification comes from one source and one source alone, and that being, as we've already mentioned, the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 comes to mind when he says, who can bring a charge of, against God's elect? Is it culture who justifies? No, it is God who justifies. Who are those other kinds of Christians in your life? What are the different ethnicities, the different cultural values that you have been passive towards wanting to be reconciled to? If we're trying to live here on earth as it is in heaven and is described in Revelation and pursue racial harmony, we must die to ourselves and to our comforts. Hear me, church, as I preach to myself if we live within our comfort bubble, we will not naturally fall into fellowship with people who are different from us culturally and ethnically speaking. From this passage in Revelation, we've established that the picture of heaven is redeemed every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they are together, worshiping together. In church, because the picture of heaven is ethnically diverse, let us here in Titusville, Florida, here in Port St. John, Cocoa, Cocoa Beach, Florida, be a church, be a people who put aside our own cultural comforts and put aside our politics and fellowship around the Lamb who was slain for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lastly, we see every nation worshiping together. One thing we see here in Revelation 7 why does he say every tribe, tongue, and nation? There's distinction. There's ethnicity. There's a difference. John is able to look. He's able to listen and comprehend that there's 
I'm hearing different things right now. I'm hearing different languages. I'm seeing different colors of people, all worshiping the same Savior. We're not some sort of ambiguous, ethereal angel like floating in heaven. That's not what happens to us when we die. We're made different from the angels. We don't just have the race and ethnicity in heaven as classifications on government forms like American Indian or Alaska Native or Asian Black American Black or African American Native Hawaiian, other Pacific Islander or white. We have every tribe that has ever been in India, Albania, Algeria, Belarus, Ukraine, China, Japan, Afghanistan, on and on we could go in the modern classification of countries and even ancient countries. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, picture that with me for a second, worshiping around the throne of God, their Savior. We, we, we don't even have a context for some of these people. Like, if you've ever been overseas, you've been in a, like a, a bodega or something where you just feel like, wow, I stand out like a sore thumb. Church, we're going to stand out like a sore thumb in heaven, but at the same time not, because we're all, every single one of us, worshiping the same God. This would be the most disjointed thing on our earth today. And at the same time, I call us to that today as a church, that we would be that church, that we would represent that, not because we want the world to be like, wow, Trinity is diverse, cool. No, but because that's how God describes his bride in heaven. While I've been just thinking and praying through this sermon, I can't help but just feel like I'm preaching a mission sermon. Like I'm gonna say, go to the overseas, but I'm not. But it's the same message in terms of the thrust of why we go. You see, we have an actual real-life example of this who's, who's with us in Trinity. When Casey Green, who was planning to go to India prior to 2020, she spent time in New York City living in a community that was highly ethnically diverse. She, we're not saying she moved like and lived around the yuppie, like cool people in New York City, like around the art d- district, like she'd fit in perfectly. No, she moves to a place where people from all over the world and spends her time working with Muslim immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East, as well as Chinese international students from NYU. Casey stepped out of her comfort zone here in Titusville into a vastly different culture, but within her own country, in order to train and prepare herself to go to another nation to reach another people group so that the name of Jesus may be known. And I ask you right now, when you hear that, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, I'm glad some people do that. I understand that Titusville, I've looked at the statistics. I understand that Titusville, Port St. John, Cocoa, Cocoa Beach, where many of us live, are not the most ethnically diverse places in the world. That's not to say there's not ethnic diversity here in Titusville. We don't bring our gospel message, our gospel message to other nations as in, oh, let me help you and make you better. We bring God's gospel message that is meant for them. We're doing our duty as believers. It's not our message. It's God's. It is our privilege to make every effort for the sake of the message of redemption and Christian unity to reach out and find ways to become more ethnically and culturally diverse. Gospel community. 
Church, this will never happen. This will never happen. This will never happen if we sit in our comfort bubble and we don't ask ourselves, is it worth it today? Is it worth it to step into the discomfort and the awkwardness? Is it worth it to deal with assumptions of others? Or should we just wait till heaven, right? It's going to happen. No. But because it's a certainty, because we know it's going to happen, we go with confidence. Again, in this picture, everyone's eyes are fixed on the throne, worshiping and celebrating around our God, our one thing, the Savior. Can you picture that? I, I want to take you back what feels like a lifetime ago when we used to go to concerts and movies. And uh, like, uh, if you can with me for a second, imagine a day um, where we gather together and focus on one thing. If you've seen videos or um, maybe you've been yourself standing in the crowd um, and just screaming at the top of your lungs, one video comes to mind in particular of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. I didn't watch it in real life, obviously, but I've seen YouTube. <laughs> and um, it's amazing because I understand audio quality wasn't the best then, but there's moments when you can't hear the music or the Beatles singing because 16 to 25-year-old girls are screaming at the top of their lungs. And it's complete pandemonium, but they're all, there's probably some of those girls' most united moment in their life. I mean, if you see a college football game, there's people from all over the place all loving and wor literally worshiping, let's be honest for a second, the same thing. And it's this moment of pure just magic, right? And, but here, it transcends that. Because it lasts beyond a concert and it lasts beyond a football game. They worship with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. They're saying the same thing here. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're not saying salvation belongs to the Lord and who sits on the They're screaming it with a loud voice, with palm branches in their hand. What does that call your mind to? Jesus Christ coming in on a donkey, right? The crowd shouting, Hosanna, laying down palm branches. It's a moment of celebration of the king who has arrived. I don't know if it is, we are literally going to be in heaven waving palm branches. We touched on this a little bit earlier. I don't think that's the point of revelation. John, he's seen this and God is communicating something to a certain context, a context that quickly understands like, oh, palm branches, that's exciting. Like if we saw someone waving palm branches, we're going to be like, what's that? What's my son doing? He's two. <laughs> that makes more sense. But really here, they're waving palm branches in pure just joy and excitement because they have something to celebrate. They have full restoration to their king and full restoration to each other. Something that for the Christian we should be fighting for and longing for and striving towards. And finally, we get it without inhibition, with nothing stopping us. How much more one day will we all worship around the king together? the one who has restored us to himself, who by laying his life down has brought us to himself and to each other. Finally, one comment on the, the praise is solely God who sits on the throne and the lamb. Therefore, John Piper says this, a very common quote, you might have heard part of it before. 
Therefore, worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Mission is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go, because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth included. I think to contextualize this quote with what we're saying in terms of pursuing ethnic harmony, pursue ethnic harmony as a part of the gospel mission, because it ensures that we are sharing the gospel and not our cultural values. It's a picture of heaven. When the gospel is conflated with any culture, accepting culture is what becomes the saving agent. But no culture will ever save you. We want to see every ethnic group in our community worshiping our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll say that again, because I don't want to get lost in kind of a ethereal idea. We want to see every ethnic group in Titusville, Mims, Port St. John, Coco, if you live further than Coco, that's cool, Melbourne, on and on we could go, worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know ethnic harmony will happen, so we go with confidence. Is Justin around? He's probably out there. Hey, Justin. We go with confidence because we know it will happen. When in heaven, I already mentioned, like, we're going to stand out. We're going to be different. But at the same time, we won't because we'll all be worshiping the same God together. We don't pursue ethnic harmony because it's a hot topic today. We pursue it because a consequence, an effect of the gospel is ethnic harmony as seen in Revelation. And what's stopping us? Is it, are we afraid that we won't be accepted? Well, we know throughout Jesus' teaching that he told us that the believer will not be accepted at times. That's just part of sharing the gospel. Your confidence in going to those who are different than you is not found in your ability to relate or to be personal or to check the 2020 I care about cultural issues box. But our driving force is seen here in Revelation 7. We know that heaven will be filled with every tribe, tongue, and nation because Christ died for every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we go. So we go across our neighborhoods. We go across our cities to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Church, we are qualified and we are further called to share the gospel and seek racial harmony, not because we completely understand pseudoscience behind ethnicities and their structures, but because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We share this message not because we want to see others, we, not because we want others to see how in touch we are with culture, but because the only true way to harmony is by fixing our eyes on the Lamb who was slain together. It's appropriate that today is Communion Sunday. If you have your elements, please pull them out. If not, there's some over there. You, you can go grab them. Please do. This is a practice that is not strictly here in Titusville, in America, not even 21st, 20th, 19th century. Communion, the Lord's Supper, began on the night Jesus was betrayed. Colossians 1.19 says this, For in him, being Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of the cross. It is our privilege as believers to carry out the message of reconciliation. So if you're sitting here this morning and the idea of reconciliation is not something you care about, I'm not even saying you're anti-reconciliation. I'm saying it's just, this doesn't hold water for you and you're understanding the gospel. I want to call us to repentance. We have a privilege to see, to be a part of Christ reconciling the world because he bought us with his blood. Paul writes to the Corinthians for communion. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, it is amazing that we get to do that as a local congregation. It's also amazing that that is going to be done on Sunday across the world with people who are a lot different than us. When we share communion, we share it with each other and we share it with the Lord's redeemed, his people. If you would please stand.